Hebrews chapter 3. This book is full of exhortations and warnings and uh, full of the blessings we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who do we have? We have a person that the book of Hebrews describes as superior to the prophets. As superior being appointed like Moses and faithful like Moses but the builder of the house of God unlike Moses is a comparison of a similarity and then superiority there's a similarity of the Lord Jesus to the prophets then God clearly shows his superiority. There's a similarity of Jesus to the angels in that he's also a messenger because it says the word came and was given through the prophets as well as the angels. And he is much better than the angels. He's much better than the priesthood. He is a priest, a high priest. He's shown to be superior to all of the priests, the high priests. He is better than the shadow of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. In Revelation, he's called as one who will tabernacle with man to bring his presence. There's a copy of this temple or tabernacle in heaven. What was on earth was a copy of what was in heaven. There's a rest that Jesus gives similar the similarity, like the tabernacle, like the priesthood, like the prophets, like the angels. There's a similarity in the function of the Lord Jesus when he became man. And when he was exalted after his death by crucifixion, paying for all our sins, and raised as our justification in his resurrection, He's exalted. He's shown to be superior also in his eternal ministry to the children of God whom we read the other day he calls brethren because he partook of the same suffering, the same weaknesses, but he overcame them all. He tasted death for every one of his human family. God came and became one of us not to have the sins but to take our sins as a sinless substitute. So there's a superiority that is continually emphasized. Superior rest than Joshua's rest that was given when they entered Canaan. 
the rest speaking of God's Sabbath rest is the Lord of Sabaoth one who's given us the rest that we could not achieve by ourselves and how do we achieve it after all it's in what he achieved faith in what he achieved for us that's why it's written whoever is seized from his own works that person is the one who's actually entered into his rest what are these works repentance from dead works repentance from seeking to please God in our own strength own abilities not to say that we don't have the ability to please him must be clarified that very important point some people many people these days they say we cannot do it and so they believe that there's nothing they can do god has to save them and god has to keep them and god has to help them not to fall away and if they ever fall away it's because god has something better the twisted perversion of the truth God has told us in this very same book after mentioning the superiority of Jesus Christ even the rest that he gives is an eternal rest for all who would come into him come under his covering washed by his blood to show that he is superior gives us the greatest hope anyone can have because under the law they looked to the tabernacle they understood it's the holy place they understood moses was given this design elaborate design for the tabernacle that there's a pattern given by god from heaven that moses should copy they understood it was very special they understood the oracles the messages that came to them down from moses and the prophets they understood why the priesthood was given especially the high priest they understood the need for the sacrifices these became the perfect sacrifice they understood that god was trying to get them into that land of canaan even though they rebelled for 40 years in the wilderness and the second generation along with joshua and caleb went in they understood all those things they needed all those things but all those things were the shadow they understood the ministry of angels different times angels came ministered to them in the wilderness and to the prophets they knew all of these things were designed by god they were given all these things and yet all of these things the prophets the angels the physical rest in Canaan for a short time because of their disobedience again as we see in the book of judges the priesthood how necessary it was to have the sacrifices for all of these things everything pointed to the substance so the shadow is in the old testament the substance is in the new testament 
And the confidence we have in Christ is that all of those things that the Jews received and enjoyed could not give them the ultimate rest until Jesus came. They all looked toward that rest, the ultimate rest, by faith. And while they had faith, they enjoyed God's rest as much as possible until Jesus came and perfected that and gave the ultimate rest. So, in this very book we'll see that they look for something better. Everything points to Jesus Christ. The Lord said to his enemies, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life. But all the scriptures speak about me. They're all about me. Because I've come to give and achieve what man could not achieve himself. And so we've come into this book that so far in the first two chapters has established and will continue to establish how great Jesus is. How wonderful he is. How we can have supreme assurance that when we place our faith in the living God, in Jesus Christ, there's no fear. We read about that recently. The lifetime of bondage to the fear of death. Death is a cruel thing, a horrible thing. Because of the loss involved and the suffering involved and the uncertainty involved. But God helps us to enter into a rest where there's no fear of death. Only God can do that. There are many people in the world who may say, I'm brave. And they may say, I'm not afraid to die. But that's because they're deluded if they don't have Jesus truly. Because if on the other side of death they have hell waiting, they have deceived themselves. Thinking that without Jesus I can face death and be brave. And there's a horror waiting on the other side. But for the believer, that person man, woman, or child, is truly the only class of people, of the only class of people who legitimately and truly can say, I have no fear of death. Because Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil, through his own death. He defeated death. He rose triumphantly. So that all believers can look to him, the forerunner, who's gone before us into the heavens, our faithful high priest, and that we're going to follow him. There's no darkness. Although the suffering and during the cross, like in the Garden of Gethsemane and the arrest of Jesus and the crucifixion and the trial, all those things can be extremely painful and extremely dark. But there's a light that's within us. And there's a deposit of the Holy Spirit that God has given us that will come into full blossom, full bloom and be revealed all over the universe that we belong to Jesus. Now, 
It doesn't appear what we shall be, says in the Epistle of John. But when we see him, we should be just like him. These are the assurances God gives. He says, I've ripped you away from that bondage of fear of death. I recall in the 1920s or 30s from reading that, again, in the massive sweep of the Holy Spirit in China, that there were some very young children who uh, were facing death. There was there were these young children, and some of them were, I think, seven or eight years old. And during this time of revival, during this time of revival, some of these young children had visions. And they told the family, the parents gathered around them, the older siblings, these children, some as young as five, in this revival in China in the 1920s and 30s. They told, these young children told the parents and the siblings gathered around them that I'm going to be with Jesus. And these children looked in the eye of either the siblings or the parents, whoever they knew were not ready to face Jesus. And solemnly, lovingly urged them, give your life over to Jesus. I want to see you in heaven. If you want to see me again, you must surrender to the Lord. And then they went into the arms of Jesus with great peace. And the, especially the ones who they spoke directly to, they were in tears. But they repented. Except a kernel of wheat fall to the ground and die. Life won't spring up. What a triumphant entry into heaven that a little child can go into heaven receiving the welcome of a general. God is not partial, but as we are going to continue to read in the book of Hebrews, there's a race we have to run and the Lord is there to encourage us to say, drop this and drop that. As you're running, drop the weights, whatever's hindering you from going for the prize. If a little child can speak by the Holy Spirit, at the moment he or she is going to die, looking directly in the face of that older sister or that mother or father, older brother, whoever the Holy Spirit showed clearly that they're not ready to meet Jesus. They're in danger. With a loving, solemn warning, charge them, I urge you, because I love you, God loves you, please repent. Then we'll be together again in heaven. How many funerals, how many bedside last moments of individuals? So many things are said. And only one thing matters. No ritual, no rites. Nothing will do anything for the human soul except loving invitation. Loving but solemn invitation. And coming from the one who is going to enter glory. How powerful that is. 
powerful for that individual because it shows the strength of that person's connection with God. That they are completely in the rest of God already before they go to heaven. They've entered into that rest. That's why they can speak in such a way because their consciences are clean. They have received the blood of Jesus and they're able to, out of love, tell others. And so the book of Hebrews gives us tremendous assurance, exhortation, showing that Jesus is the one. He's the one. If we look to him, we understand how he's superior to all these things, prophets, angels, the priesthood, the tabernacle, even the rest that the Israelites were supposed to enjoy in Canaan. And he is the perfect sacrifice, achieving what humanity could never achieve. Even with all of those things God gave, what they were expected to do was, by faith, look to God to provide that better thing. And those who walked by faith before the law, such as Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, then by the time of the law, Joshua, Caleb, Moses himself, and others who trusted in God, David, Solomon, when they were walking with God and those who ended well, and the judges, and those people in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, they all had a measure of rest. And they were, like Elijah, ready to be with God. But, still, it's written explicitly that they all still look forward. David being a prophet, Abraham being a prophet, Moses being a prophet. They all spoke about this Messiah, and they had part of the picture. They didn't have the full picture. But they knew by revelation from the Holy Spirit, and that's why they wrote. And they spoke. It's written of David, I have believed, and therefore I have spoken. He knew. The Lord said unto my Lord, Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. They knew about the Trinity. They knew the Son, as in Psalm 2, again from David. Today I have begotten you. You're my Son. They all looked to Jesus. And we have the greatest privilege of having the entire canon of scripture even this book of Hebrews elaborately detailing exactly why and how Jesus is supreme because by comparison showing the similarity of Jesus to all these things mentioned and that he's the ultimate sacrifice he's also shown to be the creator the sustainer and the terminator of the created order that we see today because in Psalm, in the book of Psalms, as quoted in Hebrews, chapter 1, it says, like a garment, like a clothing, Lord, you're going to change everything. That means the sun that we see that looks to be as if it was here forever, one day will become dark and red, like, or the moon will become red, turn like blood. The sun could also, but the emphasis on the moon. 
so many things will happen to cause the entire known universe to be changed. It will be burnt up and then completely changed. All the planets, everything will be gone. The stars, the earth. And the book of Hebrews, it takes us future to say that everything that can be shaken will be shaken at one point. Which means the whole universe of matter. God and those in him, in Jesus, cannot be shaken. And as he remains forever, even though as a vesture he will change the universe, but he remains the same forever. So we have confidence that there is stability, there is glory. We are actually come to that man, Christ Jesus, who was the supreme prophet, more than a prophet, supreme priest, supreme high priest, more than a high priest, is God himself. Your throne, O God, endures forever. He saw in Hebrews 1, quoting the Psalms again. The Father speaking to the Son. So what kind of confidence is being built up here? These Hebrew Christians, they knew all of these things about the law, the tabernacle, the priesthood. They were very familiar with it. And the Holy Spirit says, everything that you've ever known and received from even that premier prophet who received the law at Sinai. Everything is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. What is the meaning of that for us? Just to know the history and the comparison and the relativity of it? No. It's to know that I am in that person who is the supreme one. There is no one better that can take my sins and completely purge me of them. Hallelujah. There is no one that can guarantee that he will take me into heaven to live with them forever. Absolute bliss and joy. No one better than Jesus. There is no one better than the resting place but Jesus himself. There's no better high priest who can continually daily be in my stead as a representative before the Father, moment by moment, than Jesus Christ. This is what it means for believers, just as much as it meant to the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians, the Messianic Jews, if you will, in the early church. We have such a confidence I know the one who destroyed the devil's power. I know the one who made the promise that he can keep because he actually rose from the dead to guarantee that his will will be distributed to the recipients. There's no one else. Whoever rose from the dead to come back to guarantee that the state doesn't take all the money. That the people that they wished should get their belongings and estate. Actually, have been verified that they got it. You know why? Because that person came back from the dead. What a shock if somebody rose from the grave while the will is being executed. The things are supposed to be distributed. While cheating is going on and lying and fighting amongst the siblings and the descendants and maybe the state is involved and other parties and greedy people. All of a sudden in walks this ghost the very person whose will they're contesting. To no, I wrote this, and I'm here to sign. Where, where's the 
dotted line or where should I testify? I'm here. I'm the one who wrote it. Back from the dead to execute it. Jesus is the only one. Such an assurance. How rich. The purpose of the scriptures is to show how great God is. Not by assignment of value and status by us. But by virtue of his very nature. We get a glimpse of of his glory and of heaven we read the word of God and particularly the book of Hebrews we are shown just how rich we are how much we have and the absoluteness the supremacy of it we cannot lose and as typical of the epistles as we know the writer demonstrates who God is his greatness of his personhood, his performance, that is what he's done, and then the promise he makes to us, and then how he perfects us so we can enjoy everything. It's the person of God, his performance, how he's acted in the past and what he's doing now, what he says he will do, his promise to us personally, and the guarantee that he will perfect all who come to him. Can we get anything better than this anywhere, not only on earth, in the universe? Someone says, well, I haven't been all over the universe. I don't know. As a young man told me, when we walked across the campus in Brooklyn College some 31 years ago or so, as the Lord wanted to save him, and he got saved that day, but as we're crossing the campus, and I was sharing the word with him he says I think it's very egotistical and arrogant of man to think that he's the center of the universe as if there's no other life in some how do we know there's no life in other planets I said we have the revelation of God he knows everything and if he said at a certain point in time he sent his son and a specific point in time during Passover he became the Passover Lamb of God for all humanity, for all time, to have his sins forgiven. And if he said that he created man in his own image, and if he's a God of purpose, and through that humanity, through that Jewish nation, through the line of Judah, he brought a specific individual once and for all. There's nothing greater. He's connected himself with humanity forever through Jesus Christ who became human. And so, in various words, I explained to him. He had more questions and then there's a prophetic moment that happened as we sat there in the department office to study for an exam in anatomy. I was into athletic training at that time and sports oriented and I'm sitting there and as I kept speaking all of a sudden he laughed and then he cried with all the faculty there and they were hearing in the department office and he said you just said something he said just last night I I was uh, 
thinking to go and murder someone. This person that's smiling, he made a confession right there. He said, I'm in such a situation and this person got me really angry and I was literally going to go do this. He said, now you're telling me God loves me and he can forgive me of my sins and give me a new heart and change my life. And we walked from there to outside of the college gym, right in front of the elevators, in public, and he knelt down right there. Gave his heart to the Lord, and after that began vigorously reading the Bible. Never really read it. Got him a copy of the Bible, and he began reading. Went through books of the Bible. And his whole life changed. But the invitation of God is to everyone to come and partake of the rest. The rest of God. To enjoy that rest. And we get to enjoy it before we get to heaven. Because it's just a seamless continuation. But the question is, have we come into the rest? And the only way we can come into the rest is if we understand who Jesus is clearly. What he has done clearly. What he has promised us clearly. And believe that he will perfect us completely. He does it all when we just say, Lord, here's my hand. What does that giving my hand into the hand of the Lord constitute? There are many songs and Christian songs and poetry, country stars and uh, literature, geniuses, literary geniuses. They have all kinds of poetry and songs and imagination about the Son of God and some of the old uh, English writers too that we read in college or high school. But who's actually entered in? The one who enters in by faith that Jesus is enough for me. What he did on the cross is enough for me. Because it's enough he has changed my nature so that he can actually trust that I will follow him. And anyone who doesn't trust Jesus after he's done everything on the cross for us and he's given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a guarantee that he will complete what he started, they're actually acting abnormally. That means a believer who smokes is acting out of character. That's right. The devil will come and say, you're a believer, but you're still a sinner. What's the use of believing in someone who can't save me from sin? But Jesus is an almighty Savior who completely destroyed the power of sin in my life. There's a maturity that we'll see in the book of Hebrews. That the more closer I get to Jesus, the more I understand His Word clearly, the more confidence I'll have, faith will grow, and I'll be able to kick out things as He exhorts in Hebrews 12. Just drop it. There's no legalism. There's no undue pressure. But there are exhortations and warnings. In this book we have five warnings. From neglecting to hear the word of God, neglecting the salvation, all the way to full-blown apostasy. That's right. 
There have been various interpretations of it, but it's very clear that the people he's writing to are full-fledged believers. There's no question about that. We'll see that as we go along. And so the warnings are real. But the focus is not on the warnings, it's on the rest and the encouragement that God says, you know, if I have to chasten you, I will. But I want you to know it's because I love you. Now, let it do its work. Don't take it lightly because something worse can happen. Jesus went to that man, he healed him, then he found him later, he says, don't go back because something worse will happen. How gracious God is. Some of us have gone back more than once. And you know who came and rescued us? It's the same Jesus. But he expects a change because number one, his grace is given with an expectation as we heard about the talents last evening. Number two, time runs out. And that's why in this very book, the exhortation is also with a warning. Today, if you hear his voice, stop it. Whatever is not of God, get it out of your life. As you see what? The day approaching. Gather together. Assemble yourselves. Don't neglect the assembling because some people do that and they fall away. So don't do that. Now you gather yourselves together. God's presence. As you see that day. What day? The day of the Lord. It's coming. We know. People of the world who don't even believe in God, believe in Jesus, they know. We're coming close to the end. And we have a worldwide plague that is unprecedented. Fear that is unprecedented globally. Death and the nature of death that is unprecedented in the sheer numbers that we see globally. And this when in the midst of the greatest technological advances mankind has ever seen. It was Billy Graham who, I believe about two or three decades ago, said at that time, in the last 25 years, he said, we have made more advances than all of the years before that. And yet the problem remains. The problem of sin the problem of death, human suffering, fear of death. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing. Except the promise of God, the rest of God. So with all of this, he gives us that complete assurance that if we stay clear of sin, we'll have the full assurance that we're actually following him who came to free us from sin. But if we draw back and we defect and go back to the world and get enamored with Hollywood and Las Vegas and all these things and horoscopes, don't stand up for the truth. By and by we'll slip. And if we continue to slip, that backsliding will turn into apostasy. That's a very clear declaration in this book. Absolutely no mistake about it. You can just see that in Hebrews 6. Hebrews 10. But the rest of the book, interspersed with five warnings, also has tremendous encouragement. As I often say, God is a realist. He says it as it is. But the devil, he's a liar. 
He will paint pretty pictures and give people false assurance. I know you believe. How do you know that? Well, because you go to church. You read your Bible. You pay your tithes. And you evangelize even. Look, you even preach. Don't let anybody condemn you. Tell you you're not a believer. You know what God says? A tree is known by its fruit. That never changes. So whoever calls himself or herself a believer and says, I'm attached to Jesus, he's my Lord and Savior, I kiss my cross every day before I go to sleep, kiss my Bible, and I try to do the right thing and be good, that's just a religious atheist. Could very well be. If obedience to the commandments of God are not there. What obedience? To be separated from this world like Abraham? To be consecrated to God like Abraham? To be persevering in the journey of faith like Abraham? Obedience. We will see. Obedience is a key word in the book of Hebrews. Is exactly what the devil attacks. The moment someone says, you know what? You're defiling your body in this temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you know? First Corinthians 6. So, you should not be smoking. I'm not here to condemn you or tell you what to do. I'm telling you what God shows. Somebody says, well, God doesn't say anything about smoking in the Bible. He does talk about intoxication. We saw that as we went through the book of Proverbs. And furthermore, the amplification about the body being a temple, what would you bring in the temple? That scripture was shared in teen challenges and churches, wherever she's spoken. That would you go into a sanctuary with a joint? Would you go into a sanctuary with a bottle of whiskey? Would you go there with a cigarette? That is, those who believe in Christ. You just know. That this is wrong. It doesn't go together. But how would you do that when you're not in the church, when your body is the church building, the temple? And do you know that whoever defiles the temple, God said, I'll destroy that person in Corinthians? I, um, I'm going to find another church. Thank you so much. Because I'm getting the creeps when I come and hear these things. I get scared. I want to go to a place where I feel comforted. God will give the greatest comfort we can ever get. But he'll tell us what is killing us so that we don't end up in delusion and destruction ultimately. And so, when we understand that these are the commandments of God, including keeping the temple undefiled, and if we defile it, we continue. God has no choice than to get rid of the one who is destroying his temple. This body belongs to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20 The body belongs to Jesus. So it's not hard to see that I should not be drinking. Because no matter how well someone says they can hold their liquor, social drinking, whatever it is, the Bible clearly says it's not wise. And we only need to look at perhaps our own family, our neighbors, the news. Some things are etched in our memory that will never be taken away, such as when I was in the subway. One day, going to work, and I saw they evacuated the train and here's a worker 
a day laborer. They open the shirt and he's there, completely unconscious. And he's going up the escalator with the crowds of people in the morning rush hour. You know, the police gather around him. I was thinking, why would he ever let that thing master him? Jeopardize his family, his earnings, his life. And I don't know if he lived or not. I just prayed as I went up the escalator. Lord, have mercy on him. Please, Lord, help him, Lord. How many people are dominated by this drink and smoking? And they routinely, they know people are getting cancer. They're dying horribly with pain. Not only the common people, famous actors, it's well known. They still do it. Why? Deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. And what if somebody would go to them and tell them, you're hurting yourself and furthermore, it's a sin against God. Who's afraid to say that to someone? God hasn't called us to be cowards. We have to stand up and tell people out of love. This is wrong. We met a lady the other day in the grocery store. Pastor and I were there. And it was someone that was uh, in charge of Samuel's case. Advocate. And she was boldly telling Pastor Kirba some time ago. I um, called the cops on my husband. Basically framed him. Saying that he's um, abusing me. They came and got him, arrested him. And she took the stuff and went to be with another man. This woman that is so polite, so nice, so amiable. And she said, he's a good man. Every year he takes me on vacation. He's okay, but we just, there's something just doesn't get along. And I met this other guy and he gives me what I need. The horror. And here she is in the grocery store with this other man saying, I'm going to go to Florida. We're going to start new. The other man was crying, the husband. She took the house, she took everything. And sold it. And gleefully said, I can't believe it. It's so, so quick. God is so good. My God. Committing adultery. Saying God is so good. Effectively killing an innocent man who was weeping and saying, if I did anything wrong, please forgive me. He was an innocent party. And here she is. Ruthlessly, no wonder the proverb says the adulterer. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, "I didn't do anything." But these things are rampant, as we see the divorce rates and other things happening within the church. What's happened to the church? They love to talk about Jesus, but they hate to follow him. Who? The whole church? No, thank God. That's not how it works. God has a remnant. Where? all over the world. Which church? Various churches. How are they identified? God sees who's obeying him and who doesn't. He that loves me keeps my word. The one doesn't, who doesn't love me doesn't do what I say. He said, that's how I know. Jesus himself said in John 15 as well as John 14, I know who belong to me because the marker is the ones who belong to me do what I say. What did you say, Lord? You said, love you, right? And then love our neighbor as ourselves, right? I do that. I love my neighbors. And I love you, Lord. 
The Lord says, well, if you love me, have you departed from iniquity? What's that? Defiling your body, being jealous, putting down others, entertaining immoral thoughts, being greedy of gain, lying, stealing. All of these things cataloged. Most Christians don't even want to hear about it, but they'll say, I know the Ten Commandments. Or I try to keep them the best I can. God knows I'm not perfect. Too many people are deluded thinking that, well, if Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect forerunner of my future bliss in heaven. He's the perfect prophet and more than a prophet. Perfect high priest. I have everything in Jesus. The same book of Hebrews says, if after tasting of the heavenly powers, after being sanctified by that holy blood and we trample the Son of God after that. Because the language is extremely severe and strong in Hebrews 10. After knowing all this, he says if we sin willfully, it's like we're walking over the Son of God and counting that blood by which he cleanses us out of his mercy and only his mercy. We didn't deserve anything. He said it's like spitting at all of that, doing despite to the grace of God. We can read it right there when we get to it in Hebrews 10. So a whole bunch of exhortation and backdrop as to what we have. He said in light of this, be careful that you do not sin against God. Because if we willfully sin against God, after he's done all this, you are in eternal danger. Not just mortal danger, eternal danger very clear in this book now if I have that understanding I'll be a healthy Christian I'll have what's known as the fear of God which is good because that's the thing that leads to life and so God gives us all these things and to neglect any of them you see we can go into this book and say I'm going to zoom in on every warning I like to hear warnings and be scared And no I've missed the whole picture that's not the point God never gives us warnings so he can scare us and keep us in bondage to fear and uncertainty, as we say often, walk on eggshells. No. He's a God who gives assurance. His hope is that with the fear of the reality of apostasy. Apostasy means turning back from the truth. We can never turn back from something we're not a part of. I can never say, why did you turn back if I was never facing the right way? But it's the people who are facing the right way. They came to the cross but then they started smoking, drinking, womanizing, become covetous again, go back to the vomit. And the devil is not worried about people who do that by degrees. Just a little bit. Just a little bit at a time. The devil is happy, killing me softly. With his song, he's happy. As long as the destruction happens. He'd prefer to be quick, but if not, it's okay. As long as the end result is achieved. But God comes and intercepts that. He said, don't you know where you're headed? Can you have people in your life, in your family? Have family reunion, parties, and feel satisfied and go to bed with a full stomach and say nice things and flatter one another while your family is headed to hell? Can you? That's because 
sometimes we don't know the gravity of the situation. Many times because people don't know the Word of God. They'll go and hear a day, uh, a sermon on Mother's Day, Easter, and even go every week. But you know what God is interested in? Like He told the Jews, I don't want to see leaven in your life. I do not want leaven in your house. In fact, before you can celebrate, get that thing out of your house. He told the people, get the stuff out of my temple right now. Jesus went in and forcefully, aggressively overthrew the tables and got everybody out. How dare you make my father's house a den of thieves? The question today is, as each of us are temples of the living God, is there any theft within us robbing God of his glory by partaking of things that we think are innocent because of Christian liberty? We have Christian liberty. We're free. But we're also bond slaves to Jesus. People like the Apostle Paul who willingly want to please him. That's our passion. We close with this. Is Jesus Christ seeing who he is, even in the first two chapters, and some of the things alluded to in the rest of the book, is he the supreme love of my life? I really have to ask myself that question because if not, I'm not going to have confidence. I may have a pseudo-confidence. When the moment of truth comes, I may find that I don't have solid ground to stand on. That's why God says, today, if you hear his voice, make certain who you believe and why you believe and how you show you believe. The tree is known by its fruit. It's not just the positive, but the negative. The Bible is full of positives, full of negatives. The positive is all that we gain in Christ. The negative is also part of his plan, which is you've got to depart from iniquity if you name his name. If we have that, we have everything. In the very first chapter of Hebrews, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you above your fellows with the oil of gladness. God has anointed Jesus above everyone else because he loved righteousness and hated sin. If he's my example, if I say I'm a Christian, I'm wearing a cross, I carry a Bible, I identify myself as a Christian on this, in the senses and to my neighbors and I go to church, maybe you're a deacon, an elder, maybe the preacher, the pastor, maybe the one who helps with the parking lot ministry and whatever ministry they have. Ultimately, if we don't love righteousness and utterly abhor sin, which is anything God hates. We're not going to have that approval of God, the oil of gladness. I can't claim Psalm 23. I cannot. But if I do, everything is mine. The whole kingdom belongs to me. And God is delighted because He says, you are someone who's meditating on my law day and night. That's why I make you prosperous. With a prosperity that starts in your soul. Today we have gone on some overview, unintended, unintentionally, but it's a good thing. So that we know what we're dealing with. It's not just a verse here in the chapter. There's a progression that the Holy Spirit has been developing, showing clearly who Jesus is and how in the days of his flesh he had to obey the Father. And God took that as an example 
and as a validation for why he exalted Jesus. And he's an example for us. God will exalt us if we humble ourselves to do his will. And the far-reaching effects of a person who loves Jesus supremely, above everything else, loves his word, is that the Holy Spirit will confirm when you minister and you have a burden for your family and friends, things will start happening rather rapidly. Because he will be at work. You know why? Because he has a vessel that is actually obedient. That's why so many people evangelize. You have millions of dollars invested in some huge churches in the richest country in the world. But they're struggling with youth groups, sometimes 500,000 kids in the youth group. The church having multi-million dollar budgets. Going through this series and that series and a lot of programs. But the youth pastor and the senior pastor, they're struggling. Why can't we get our kids to stop drinking and sleeping around? And how much more do we have to encourage them and have them on outings and escort them? And How should a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word, O oh Lord. We need to tell people the truth as it is. Look, you can call yourself a Christian. If you sin, you're not going to make it to heaven, period. Will God forgive somebody who sins? Absolutely, if they repent. How many times? The Lord told Peter, you do it 70 times 7. However, since we don't live forever on this side of eternity, we don't know when the cutoff point will be. In fact, the truth is, even before someone dies, they can apostatize because of continual neglect, hardening of the heart, and refusal to obey and believe, an engrossment in sin, they can get to a point of no return. Maybe you've never seen anyone like that or understood or perceived, but we see it in the Bible. The case of Judas. He was a believer for sure. Otherwise, the Lord would have distinctly said, when I sent out the 70, sent out the 12, Judas, stay behind, please. No, he went and he did miracles, signs, and wonders with the rest of them. He healed the sick, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead. And at a certain point in time, Satan entered his heart. There was a gradual decline. In the case of some of the priests and prophets, you see that. Some of them ended up committing suicide. In the case of Saul, who loved God and God loved him, even prophesied. He began to let pride come in and he began to manipulate others, ended up manipulating himself. Ended up in utter tragedy. He lost everything. He ended up going to a witch. Oh my God. Why did God put this there? Why did he leave this thing? Why can't he just put the heroes of faith all over the Bible? Isn't it true? Human psychology says just tell the positive things. Because you know if you tell the child 
if you put your finger in the fire, you're going to burn yourself. You can damage them psychologically. They can begin to fear now and imagine that they're going to get hurt before they get hurt and end up doing it anyway. Don't tell your kids not to smoke because the more you tell them not to smoke, guess what? They're going to do it. I've heard so-called Christians and churchgoers talk this nonsense. You know what? The grandchildren are in premarital relationships. You know what they say? We're praying for them. Oh, we're praying for them. We love them. What's the doctrine you have in yourself and in your family? What do you live and preach? Doctrine is just a fancy word for truth. What kind of truth do you have anyway? Is it the truth of Jesus or some mixed up worldly hodgepodge creed that you've made up for yourself to be convenient? We have to go to the Word and see what things God says are clearly not of Him. And separate from that. And the Lord help us to have that gravity when it comes to the truth of God. The Lord has shown me that people misquote so many things in the Scriptures. One of them is on whomever the that stone that the builders rejected falls, they'll be crushed to powder. And on whomever, I should say, whoever falls on that stone, they'll be broken. I've heard interpretations that, you know, when you come to Christ and your heart is broken, He'll receive you. But if you don't, there'll be judgment. That verse is saying, whoever comes against Christ, whoever is judged by Christ, when they refuse Him, there's an ultimate destruction. That's what it's saying. In other words, however, this modern paraphrase, however you look at it, whatever angle the enemies of Christ come, they'll be certainly destroyed. And this is in the New Testament. Read Thessalonians. God will appear with flaming vengeance, it says, against his adversaries. And this is the Apostle Paul telling the believers in Thessalonica. Keep enduring. I know you're being mistreated and persecuted. But you know what? I have news for you. God loves you. I love you. You love God. You love people. The church and faith is there and love. And and I want to encourage you. What's the encouragement? Jesus will appear in flaming fire to burn up the adversaries. That's the encouragement. How many people say, can we cut that out? That's a little scary. That's the reality. The ones who are zealous for God, walking with God, they'll say, come Lord, soon. Lord, destroy the enemy. As Moses said, the Lord is a man of war. He won't tolerate evil. The believer has a flame of fire within them. They have a passionate love for God and a passionate disgust and hatred for sin. And you know who else? The people who are hypocritical, who continue to spread evil doctrine like gangrene all over the place. Oh, there's a righteous hatred. can't say, I love the people who are going and killing people. No. You have to say, stop that person. Lord, stop him. How many people would esteem a judge who says, I know the guy raped so many people and murdered, but I love him. I just don't love what he did. I hate what he did, 
but I love him. Therefore, I believe that he should get a gift certificate from McDonald's and you should get him back into your schools. Even people who don't believe this, they get that man out of society. Kill him if you have to. Look how many people he's killed. We're going to let it continue. What kind of judge is this? And yet they want God to be like that? Under the guise of some perverted love? Only when we are close to God and we read the scriptures for what it is, saying, can we have that perfect Holy Ghost anointed balance of love for humanity, hatred for the devil, that's right, and his works. There is a prayer for even the worst person we know out of love. But there's a desire for vindication of God's name for anyone who continues to try to destroy God's kingdom or the people God has made in His image, humanity. May God help us to have His heart, to understand Him more clearly, to know of His nature, that He's a holy, just God. His mercy is open to all, His equal opportunity. But if someone turns away and tramples that grace, God says, again, he keeps using fire. He said the adversaries will be burned up in Hebrew says. And we know what fire is. It's just devastating to watch. The destruction that happens so quickly. And the fire is out of control. God is never out of control. But he keeps his word both to those he loves because they've come under his protection and become part of his family and also to his enemies. He makes promises that you will surely be destroyed. He told Pharaoh through Moses, you'll never see my face again. The very day Pharaoh perished, the whole host of the enemies of God he drew them the Lord drew them and he looked from heaven upon them when he looked at them it was all over we speak about the ancient kings that when they give a certain look at the bodyguards and the soldiers there in the palace they can just know by the king's face whether he's pleased or displeased and if he's displeased many times they put a bag over the person's head whoever it is in the king's presence and it's over They'll execute that person. How much more the king of kings and Satan himself, the Antichrist and the false prophet, all be caught and thrown into the lake of fire. We need to know the God we serve is a consuming fire. He's a God of love, but he's a consuming fire. We need to be careful that we do exactly what he says because he deserves all our worship. All our obedience. And we'll be pure. There'll be no wishy-washiness, confusion. And people coming and saying, well, it's okay for Christians to drink socially and, you know, we only do... But we know the ill effects of fermented alcohol, fermented drink. The Bible clearly shows the dangers of it. Why do people do it? To have a good time, to socialize? 
How many other things has God created that we can enjoy? The devil's not happy with any of those things. He says, you know what? That tree, the very tree that God said, don't go near, that's the one I want you to go to. And here's how I'm, I'm going to accomplish that. I won't tell you that directly, but I'm going to tell you, you know, it's okay. It's nice. Nobody's going to get hurt. In fact, you're going to have a great time. You're not bad. God will help us to spot Satan's voice when we're close to God. But the more we drift away, the more Satan's voice and God's voice will begin to sound almost alike to the point where you've just lost everything. This happens every day, every day, because people don't stand up for righteousness and they don't speak the truth as it is in love. They think love is saying things to flatter, not to hurt. We have to be willing to say, if there's fornication in my home with my children, boyfriend, girlfriend, there's drink and alcohol fermented drink, we know what it causes, even the slightest thing, neurotoxins and diseases. There's a build-up. It's like uh, when I wound you in the hospital many years ago, physicians right there in the hospital ward as I worked as a unit clerk and later as a volunteer with the nurses in the ER. Smoking. I'm thinking, you're a person who knows all about the human body and you're going to smoke? That's kind of the analogy we can draw for a believer who engages in any type of sin. You know the truth? And you're doing this? No. I know the truth. So I walk in obedience to the Lord. I love the Lord. And God will work with us. He will work with us. But you see, there needs to be a desire to know the truth. We need to know what God is saying these days. May the Lord give us understanding. Shall we pray? Oh Lord, thank you Lord. Thank you Lord. Father, we are supposed to live the truth and preach the truth. Nothing more, nothing less. And thank you Lord, Father, as we personally know so many people, Lord, who have been spared of diseases because they heard the truth, they stopped drinking. Whole generations drinking, but they stopped. And they were drinking while they went to church and while they were even teaching the word. Nobody told them. How seriously you take these things, Lord, because the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Others who stopped smoking, others who stopped gambling, who were going to churches that were down to earth, you know, nice people. And families are being destroyed, but they go to the funerals and say a blessing. Who knows how many of them went to heaven at all? Oh Lord, thank you for warning us, Lord, this day to be sober, to love you, to look forward to the good things you have for us in our lives, in our family's future, and for all to whom you send us, Lord. That when we see the devil's work, there's uh, anger that comes within us. Not against the people, per se. Unless they're hypocritical and they continue to destroy others also. A righteous anger. But Lord, uh, anger primarily at the devil and at that sin. I begin to pray. Bind those evil spirits, causing those people to fornicate and to medicate themselves illegally. 
intoxicated. To pray for their deliverance, that the eyes will be open. As we've seen many people, Lord, come out of faith-based centers and churches and youth groups, homeschool, ended up overdosing, dying. Because they didn't receive the right doctrine. They didn't see it practiced. Most importantly, they didn't seek God for themselves. Thank you, Lord. May our lives draw people like magnets to the Savior, the real Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the most loving God, the one who is better than the prophets, better than the priests, the ultimate, the ultimate sacrifice for our sins, the one who gives us the eternal rest, that we can live heaven on earth to a great measure before we ever get there, by loving righteousness, hating what you hate, iniquity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the crown that's awaiting everyone, Lord, who's running the race with great assurance, faith, confidence, and chucking off everything that God says to get rid of. There's a progress and maturity. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We praise and thank you, Father, for loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.